certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. A critical sample of Kira Glennon's hair sent interstate and overseas was at one point initialed by a leading DNA analyst who was later sacked for breaching testing protocols over a six-year period. Welcome to Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo here with the West Australians reporters Tim Clark and Emily Moulton. Um, well, it was actually an interesting start to the day because no sooner had you started that court was adjourned. Yes, like there was a technical glitch in terms of the subscribing services. So for those who aren't familiar, what happens in court is there's someone transcribing everything that is heard at a very fast rate. I'm not sure how they do it. and um, But there is a person, we all discussed it today when this happened, though we were like, so, no, there is someone that's doing it. So, um, yeah, so that pretty much happened, I think, within 20 minutes of court starting. Justice Hall um, basically told the court that, He'd received a notice saying that they have been unable to um, record this morning's proceedings and, and, and so he said that they had to adjourn. So we adjourned and I think it was like over two hours, I think, um, it was adjourned for and when he came back, he sort of informed the court that it wasn't just that courtroom, it was the entire building that was having problems, but they've worked out a system so that they can record inside the court and then those recordings would then be given to the transcribers after to... to I guess, produce a transcript, which the like counsel for both the prosecution and defence get um, access to to look at, um, just to, to go over what was said and prepare, you know, if they need to come back and question it um, or uh, have a, a legal issue they want to raise, they can go back to the transcript and refer to that as well as sort of where their helpers are taking notes as well. Um, what do court reporters do uh, when when court shuts down for two or three hours? Where do you all go? Breathe a sigh of relief for a little while, especially in this this um, case. Um, I, I personally stayed inside the media room just with a few others and I think um, we have been lucky enough to have access to the transcript as well. Um, so I know um, everyone was sort of taking advantage of that time to mine the transcript, go back and check anything that they want to double check and... Um, did a bit of browsing <laughs> online, reading up on all the other news of the day um, and familiarising yourself with everything else that's happening in the world because I think we're in this little bubble where all that matters is, is Claremont and that's all we sort of read about and know about and all we talk about and all the only questions we get asked about as well. So, Yeah, it was a little bit of revision as well, Matt, because we know we're just about to enter a very technical and um, forensic portion of the trial which is going to be the large portion largest portion of the trial and so going back to the opening statements and basically refreshing yourself as to exhibit numbers and what was um, you know what what is to come um, and as it turned out it was quite a useful time spent because we did get to exhibit numbers and journeys and where certain exhibits were on certain days uh, in certain countries as well so it was it was it was time well spent because uh, there'll be a lot of referencing to different exhibit numbers and and being trying to stay across which one is which and where it was at what particular time is going to be quite important well, very commendable and diligent of you both. <laughs> you could have gone shopping, but you didn't. <laughs> um, and I guess, like you just said, I mean, once you did get underway today, there was a timeline. You only had one witness today to yep. go through. And this was a really interesting forensic journey today, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so a, a chap called Gary Hyde, who was one of the forensic team that um, was involved in macro from very early on, right to uh, many years in, um, he was uh, his main, well, his first major role, I suppose, was taking, uh, um, was being at the Kira Glennon crime scene, and then the following day he took the photographs at Kira's post-mortem, which is obviously a critically important role, liaising very closely with the pathologist who's doing the post-mortem and recording everything and anything that they want recorded. Um, it was over 70 photographs he took that day, um, and then he returned a couple of days later when the pathologist returned to do some more examinations of, of Kira's body. Um, and then we found out that uh, over the years it was... Mr. Hyde, Sergeant Hyde, who was tasked with both sending off and receiving very important exhibits surrounding Kira's hair and her hair mass, as they referred it to, which is the main body of the hair that was taken from the body during the post-mortem and, and, and bagged up. And that, that hair has, has been... <laughs> Uh, on a very long and winding journey itself, including to America, where it went to the FBI in 99, came back to Australia in the year 2000, and then um, several years later it then went to Canberra, where the Australian Federal Police is based, and their hair and fibre expert had a look at it, and it was there for over two years, and then it came back to Perth again in 2005, where it did eventually go into storage for many, many years. And so Sergeant Hyde, whose job it was to get that sample ready for dispatch to America, and then when it did come back from the AFP, it was his job to open up the boxes and check everything that was in those boxes against the list of, of exhibits that went. Um, and so... We know, obviously, how important continuity and who has handled what samples and when is in this trial because of the possible sources of contamination. So he was the first witness to detail how it went and how it came back and all these interactions in between. So, yeah, so it sort of started, I guess, sort of going back to when, like, the first part in the first part of this morning before he adjourned it sort of started off with how he first became involved in in this um investigation it was he was asked to go to um jane rimmer's flat um after she'd been reported missing so he was there um as, as part of the forensic team who photographed her apartment in wembley and her car so he sort of spoke about that and the photographs and in particular, which sort of came up later on in the day, was about the hairbrush that they took from her um, bathroom cabinet. So that was sort of one of the exhibits that later on they discussed that sort of went, that was in that box that he opened up later when it was returned from the AFP in 2005. So that, that hairbrush was still there in a sealed bag um, after it had been tested by the AFP. Um, so he he sort of talked about um, how they collected it and was asked to very painstakingly go through the running sheet of what they did, where who did that and who ticked off that. So we heard a lot about that. And then um, sort of when it moved from then, he was next involved, as, as Tim said before, um, being at um, Kira Glennon's crime scene. And um, one of the things that sort of I sort of sort of clapped on when he when he mentioned when he was asked what he was wearing one of the things he said oh we were wearing like the the light blue overalls the yakka overalls and um one of the things we heard in the opening was um 
the issue of, of the Telstra te- technician uniforms, which were made by Yakka, that have the blue fibres. And so um, Carmel Bar- Barbagelli sort of asked tw- twice, um, saying, oh, what colour were the overalls? And he said light blue. So the what we've heard is it's blue uniforms. And I think from memory, they're sort of like, I don't know if you'd call them dark blue, but I guess workwear from that time was that kind of blue uniform so anyway so he he sort of said that so he was wearing that and um then he was asked about sort of dealing with with the samples from um kira that day and what his role was on that day um and then so then we moved to the boxes and and i think the first mention was um in july and correct me if i'm wrong uh 19 was it 1999 no it was february 1999 Mm -hmm. that he first went to pathwest to collect exhibits um and those exhibits were then sent to the us to the fbi so um and then from there um they sort of flicked back and forth between the this particular which they refer to as the hair mass from kira glennon so they sort of went sort of from 1999 and then they went to 2005 but then we know that before 2005, the actual um, samples were sent to the AFP in 2003, and that's something we heard from the opening. Um, but then also that they um, kept, then after they returned in 2005, they were actually kept in storage until 2018 in WA. Yes, it's a very complex and, and woven timeline. And, you know, we do keep hearing about these blue, blue fibres and, of course, um you know, everyone who takes the stand is asked exactly what they were wearing to the scenes. And that's, I mean, it's a tricky thing because, you know, Yakka, anyone who doesn't know Yakka workwear, it's hugely iconic. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, a massive Australian brand. By the 1970s, if you worked in any industry, you'd be work wearing sort of almost blue Yakka workwear. Um, and, of course, this blue fibre is from a pair of, well, Yakka workwear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, and I mean that is it is critical now, and it's going to become even more important as we do delve into this fibre evidence. That uh, what the prosecution say is it, it can't be from any other type of Yakka workwear because Yakka made a particular type of blue fibre that the the work pants and, and shorts indeed I think they called made, it Telstra were, Navy or T Navy yes it yeah. was it was called T Navy or Telstra Navy so it was their particular type of blue but that I mean that that is going to become ex- extremely important because if if the prosecution can nail it down to that it had to be from Telstra pants then obviously any other potential source is is blown out of the water, and as you said, Nat Yakka is a that they would there would be miles, thousands of miles of Yakka fabric in wardrobes, drawers, and and, and workplaces all over Australia because they 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 are pretty pretty omnipotent when it comes to workwear, and did indeed have many many contracts for many many major corporations including Telstra in the 90s and so that that is why this this seemingly innocuous question of what you were wearing on what day uh, takes on a, a whole new importance 
and then particularly when when and when a witness says yes i was wearing blue yakko um overalls then obviously that would pique the interest of the defense very much okay well if you can uh, take us back to gary hyde's evidence today mm. and um he goes to the burial site of Kira Glennon and just tell us um, you know what path he follows from there in following through that whole process right through to post-mortem and what have you yeah well so he was one of the uh, very few forensic officers um, at the scene Uh, he was uh, I think actually important there he the Um, first I think um the first thing he said that when he got there, he was tasked to go take aerial photographs. Mm. So he yep. went up in the police chopper mm-hmm. to do that. And so he spent that first part when, when all the forensic team arrived, he, he sort of said, like, I spent that first part up in the air taking the photos. And then when he came down, um, which he said was roughly between sort of 1, one thirty. um then he was asked to sort of record the running sheet and I'm sure that's sort of been discussed before and we've heard it quite a lot over the last few weeks. The, the running sheet are, are what the police use to record their movements. Like every every time someone enters the scene, it's recorded. And so his, he said his responsibility that day was to, to make those re- recordings on the running sheet. The, the normal question that everyone who was at the crime scene is asked is how close did you get to the body and he said no like no more than two meters so he was saying he didn't need to because he was there just recording he wasn't wasn't he never touched the body that he also was asked that um, and then um, he was sort of asked about recording the different exhibits and um, there's been a, a lot of discussion over one exhibit number called RH17 which is a hair sample um, from Kira Glennon which I think a few at another earlier um, sort of in the trial they talked about how when the video was being played there was like a three minute gap um, and and the taking of that hair sample wasn't filmed so there's been I think sort of today the prosecution was trying to establish that um, in you know where where this hair sample was so he sort of um, was then reading out from the exhibit list and sort of went through the different sort of um, proceeding and following numbers um, and sort of he'd read out R17 hair sample head. Um, but when he was asked if he could remember it being taken, he said he couldn't. And one of the, I guess, things today with, with Sergeant Hyde was that he, he, Justice Hall actually specifically asked him, uh, you know, especially when it came to the boxes as well, if he had an independent recollection of of his involvement in that and he said no he can only really remember things from the aid of the running sheets and photographs he'd seen um over the years and in preparation for the trial um it's been very noted that mr yo at any any point that he feels that the uh, that the witness is not trying to remember independently but is is relying too much on the on the written notes and he always he's always asking can you Please ask the witness to exhaust their their independent recollection before they they refer um, to their notes. So he's uh, Mr. Yovich is is making all the witnesses uh, exhaust their memory banks before they uh, before they turn to their notebooks. And just uh, maybe recap for us why RH seventeen is so crucial. Mm, so that's one of four. Uh, hair samples, separate hair samples, are all, obviously all from the same place, from Kira's head. But they, they were over the years they've been sampled and subsampled. But RH17 is important because that was the one that was taken in situ on the day 
before Kira had even been moved into the into the vehicle that was then to take her to the mortuary. That was it was placed in a yellow top container, which was sealed up, and the word pristine it has been used by Miss Barbara Gallo about that hair sample. So it, it hasn't gone on this journey to America and to Canberra and back again and, and through all these different pairs of hands that that, that RH17 sample w- was basically taken and wasn't touched until it was examined many, many years later and was found to contain one of these blue fibres. So it, where, it very, where it originated from, who touched it, from and who placed it or who took it from Kira and put it into that pot those three minutes of missing video if not for them we would know obviously but but for whatever reason it wasn't filmed and so every witness who was at that scene and involved with the taking of those exhibits has been asked and will and will be asked whether they can recollect who, who took it and uh, and what happened to it after that so Mr. Hyde then um, goes from in situ. He he goes to the mortuary and he um, is there also for the post-mortem. Yeah, he was the photographer. Um, um, that was his role at um, during the post-mortem examination of, of Kira Glennon's body. And he said that um, while he was sort of while he was there, like as the previous um, officer who was there for Jane Rimmers. Um, postmortem explained that they're they're there, they're being directed by the pathologist about what photos to take and so that's what sort of he was there and then afterwards um, he also collected the exhibits um, but he didn't have any, but that he also, he didn't actually collect the exhibits but that he assisted in documenting them so writing down on the piece of paper, they did two postmortems so then he returned a few days later um, where they did sort of more examinations on on Kira's body and um, Sort of after that, the question sort of turned to um, jumping sort of to 1999. He told that his next involvement was basically going to the PASS Centre in Netherlands and picking up these exhibits, which were then sent to the US. Um, and, and this is the same exhibits? from Taken from the post-mortem. Taken from the post-mortem, yeah. yes. Yeah. And so um, and we know from the opening statement that they were actually sent to the FBI. Um, and so that hair mass sample that was collected that day was given a, a number and then a subsample was taken from that and that was given a, an identifier called K1 mm-hmm. which the state says becomes a critical exhibit in their uh, in their opinion and they said an examination of that sample was carried out and that one there was a one critical fiber was located off that hair sub subsample and it was a blue polyester fiber um, and sort of during today's proceedings, um, when Miss Barbagella asked him what those exhibits were when they were sent off, he said that one was labelled hair mass um, and the other one was labelled DNA sample Williams, which we assume was Lance Williams, the man that the macro task force believed at that time um, may have been a suspect. Um, and then at the bottom of it, it's just initialed LW. And then Miss Barbara Gallo asked him, all, what's LW stand for? And then he said, oh, Laurie Webb, who was, as we know, in charge of, of Path West at the time. Okay, so can you give us, a, uh, and this is a quite interesting and is obviously important to the defence case and to the prosecution's case. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about Laurie Webb? Mm, so Laurie Webb was the, he was the boss, boss of Path West. He was the lead 
forensic scientist. It was it was he that was in, in charge of the uh, processes and the ensuring that every uh, the exhibits and, and samples that came to Pathwest and were stored at Pathwest were done uh, in up to you know critical standards and, and standards that could stand the, the test of the criminal justice system. So the reason Laurie Webb's initials would have been on the bottom of that sample is that he would have been the Pathwest officer responsible for handing them back to the police so they could then take them or send them over to America. And Mr. Webb's name is going to crop up uh, on, in, on, in various stages because because of his senior, seniority at Pathwest um, and because of obviously the, the, the critical nature of all the exhibits that were stored there, it was it was he that was in charge, as I've mentioned in a previous podcast. In fact, it was Mr. Webb personally, along with a police officer, who was tasked with um, taking the sample, the DNA samples from Kira's fingernails to um, the uh, the UK and to, to have them tested by uh, um, forensic science service over there, which we know. Uh, produced the critical DNA sample, which is at the very heart of the case. Some several years ago, uh, it, it became a, a, a quite a significant scandal in the WA criminal justice system because Mr. Webb was basically removed and sacked from his post at, at Pathwest because of uh, supposed shortcuts that he had been taking in the documentation and the uh, the the, the analysis and process of keeping um, exhibits. There was a double testing procedure that had to be done. So they, all these, when, when the exhibits were, were logged and stored and documented, there had to be a, a double stock take or a double um, ticking of all the boxes to make sure that, that they, they were where they said they were and, and, and had been for the, for the time that they were there various exhibits, not just macro exhibits, all sorts of exhibits. Um, and Mr. Webb was uh, eventually removed from his post because it was found in, in various uh, investigations that that double bagging of, of the evidence, if you like, the, the double checking of the evidence wasn't being done. And, uh, and so, uh, and there were, from memory, over 30 criminal cases, in some cases very serious and criminal cases that had to be um, uh, placed under scrutiny. The evidence that, uh, that had been presented before the court was, was placed under scrutiny because the, 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 the checkbox, the, the ticking off of the, of the evidence hadn't been done up to the, the, uh, the proper standards. Uh, I don't think, in, in fact, I'm, I'm sure that no criminal convictions have actually been overturned because of that oversight but it was obviously serious enough for Mr Webb to be removed from his very senior post at Pathwest which he'd held for a long time and certainly it, it caused uh, serious waves um, uh, in political circles and the, the uh, opposition attorney general at the time John Quigley who is now the attorney general 
um, was very critical um, of Mr. Webb and the, the what it had meant to um, investigations, which had basically had to be thoroughly checked over. Yeah, I mean, it was extraordinary and it was unprecedented mm. at the time. And just for listeners, so the times that we're talking about, this happened um, when Laurie Webb was was sacked, basically. This happened in 2016. Mm -hmm. And the cases that Tim's talking about is between 2008 and 2014. And, of course, the sample that you're talking about uh, that he personally handled is in 2012. Yes, correct. So it's right in that in it's right in that timeline. Um, And obviously, Mr. Webb will become a, a crucial witness a long-standing witness i'm sure he will be on the stand for many many days both from the prosecution side and certainly from the defense side because regardless of every, every anything else the fact that he was the man who took these fingernail samples to the uk uh, in in these these you know these precious samples where they were tested at fss came back positive for a a mixed DNA profile, including uh, a man, and then brought them back to PathWest um, with the with those results in hand. Um, I mean, that in itself will be a, a major part of this trial, um, and and a, a everything that that he did, um, along with the police officer who accompanied him, what they did in those in those days and weeks will become absolutely vital. And I think from memory, um, Carmel Barbagallo, in her opening, she sort of, uh, obviously, defence brought this up, but she said at the time that any suggestion that there was this cross-contamination in that period was just fantasy. Yeah, well, she was. She could not have been stronger in her opening statement um, in the suggestion that, that, that this, this, particularly the fingernail sample, might have somehow been contaminated. She said it was it was fantasy. Errant fantasy, that, I think. Yeah, the errant were. fantasy. <laughs> she said that DNA just doesn't just fly around the the laboratory. Um, there would ha- had to have been, you know, an extraordinary breakdown in in protocols for one exhibit to come in contact with another exhibit from a completely different case, from a completely different timeline. And uh, I, again, rereading the opening this week, something that I, I, I'd heard but probably hadn't re- really come to grips with. She also said, so the, the allegation, it would appear the allegation is going to be that the, the samples taken um, during the Karakata rape uh, investigation, which we know contained Mr. Edwards's DNA, have somehow come into contact with the Kira Glennon samples. But what Mr. Miss Barbara Gallo said in her opening was that if that had been the case, then the DNA of the Karakata victim should also have turned up when it was tested mm. in the UK, because there is no possible way that just one wow. part of that DNA sample could have come into um, uh, come into contact. If if it had come into contact, then both sets of DNA would have been transferred. Which I think is uh, I, I probably hadn't grasped the importance of that point. Well, so many weeks ago, but rereading it this week, that really jumped out at me as 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 a, a very logical and possibly very strong argument. And so when when the doctors from FSS 
give evidence whenever that might be in in several months' time, probably. Um, That will obviously be a very hot point of of contention as to Mm. whether, if if contamination was able to take place, could, could it possibly be that just part of that DNA could be transferred over? It's a very interesting question for our forensic expert who will be on tomorrow, Brendan Chapman. I I think we'll have a lot for him to um, try and, you know, help us wade through here because I just feel it is getting quite complex with just looking at the numbers, you know, the RHs and the, you know, the... AJM and K1, V1, VW1, there's lots of different numbers. And, And the thing that I've sort of been able to sort of go back and reread like the opening statement is that... The, the different numbers are actually, some of them are still talking about the same thing, but they're just given a different number as the investigation progresses. So that makes it more confusing because mm. <laughs> it goes from AJ54 to VM or and then RH1 then goes to like K1 or something. It just, yeah, it gets confusing. <laughs> no. Oh, we will promise to try and keep it, keep it as clear for the listeners as we can. But uh, um, yeah, it, it is going to be, it is going to be, complex and it is going to be complicated but uh, um, we know from the the questions and the emails that we're getting every day Matt that uh, the listeners are fully engaged with the cases we are so they're very astute we'll we'll try and keep it as clear and as precise as we can Um, well we do have a couple of listeners questions you bring me to that point Um, now these are um, variations of similar questions which we keep getting so we'll sort of just pick one that um, sums up various people's questions this one's from Tanya were Mr and Mrs Cook and we might just remind people that Mr and Mrs Cook were the couple that Bradley Edwards was supposed to be having a weekend getaway with and failed to show until the next morning Um, it has been said that Kira in particular had massive defensive wounds to the point on her thumb now being partially torn off so her, her question is did the Cook's or were the cooks not asked about whether Bradley Edwards had any, um, you know, obvious wounds? Obvious wounds. I don't, um, I don't think, I can't remember, but I don't know. Can you remember? Um, I don't think that question was asked. Um, because, I don't recall it. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that question was asked, but I am sure that if Mr and Mrs Cook had seen some uh, some sort of defensive or some some sort of obvious injury on Mr. Edwards, that it would have been in in one of these statements. I I can't I cannot believe that the police would 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 not have asked them about that um, at the time and and afterwards um, because it, I mean it, that would just be a basic in, a basic investigative um, query you would you would have thought. So uh, I, I think the simple answer would be they weren't asked because it wasn't in their statement. And Bridget um, has a question. She also talked about the night that Kira Glennon went missing. Um, we know that Bradley Edwards didn't show for this weekend getaway until the next morning. But uh, she asks, has, does he have alibis for the nights that Sarah Spears and Jane Rimmer disappeared? I know you've sort of answered these through the course of the, the trial, but if you can just mm. recap um, where he says he was at the time. Well, um, so the uh, Sarah was stray Sarah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for so for Sarah's disappearance on January twenty seven, um, he was said to be um, or claimed to be down south 
visiting his wife. Is that um, am I am I right there? Yeah, that was. I think yeah. that was the night that he the fireworks that his first wife couldn't recall. But yeah. I'm, so Em's exactly right there. So uh, it's short answer is he, he as from what we've heard so far, Mr. Edwards cannot account for that time when Sarah went missing. He was down south with his, supposedly trying to reconcile with his with his wife was rebuffed on the fireworks night and then was at work at some stage early uh, the, the, the next day. Um, so there, and as I say, we have not heard any alibi from Mr. Edwards's defence team, either in the opening or, or any suggestion during any of the questioning. And that, that's the, the same for the night that uh, Jane went missing. We haven't heard anything from the defence side um, or any hint of any possible alibi um, for, the, for the night that Jane went missing either. And I guess as we keep hearing that, you know, the onus is not upon them to uh, prove his innocence. Mm-hmm. It's all depending on prosecution to be able to um, show that beyond reasonable doubt. Correct, Nat. But I, th- I think Damien's touched on it previously in a, in a previous podcast. When it comes to alibis, is it the, the rules there are slightly different. Um, if you do intend to use an alibi, then there is a, um, uh, an agreement that you have got to give some sort of notice to the prosecution um, so that they, they are then placed in a position whereby if they want to disprove it or can disprove it, they can. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the case, but can we, we'll park that one for the listeners and maybe revisit it when we speak to uh, Damien again uh, next week. So that's another one for Damien's list. That part is growing as well (laughs) with all of the questions that are coming in. So if you do want to talk to us or contact us, it's Podcast at wanews.com.au. If you want any more information on the Claremont serial killings trial, head to thewest.com.au. And I believe, was there an exhibits release today if if listeners wanted to? Uh, There was just one um, picture of of Claremont back in the day, um, which was taken by Mr Hyde. Um, he was d- dispatched out there after midnight one night um, to take some pictures of the, the, the Claremont Strip, particularly Stirling Highway, to show what um, sort of lighting was, was, was in place at the time, just to, to obviously give the judge um, an, another view of Claremont, although it was, it was actually just Stephen Hall who was telling the photographer where, which part of Claremont he was in rather than the other way around. So familiar is the, uh, is the, the judge alone with the area. With the area. <laughs> Well, if you would like to see that picture, you can see that on the website. That's thewest.com.au. Thank you both for your time. No worries. We'll be back tomorrow for Day 26 of Claremont in Conversation, and we hope you can join us then. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.